This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right. So to uh, address this question of the impact of tool use and technology uh, on the evolution of the human mind, I want to address. I want to begin by addressing this question: How can we account? for our species' immense ecological dominance and our stunning technological prowess. Now, when people approach this question, they come to it with certain intuitions, intuitions that we're smart, we're good at building causal models of how the world works, we're good at individually figuring out, and this must be the secret of our success. But it turns out that that's not the best story and that we're actually not that good at figuring things out. And so what I'm going to try to convince you today is that, in fact, Uh, There's another way of approaching this, and there's a different explanation for the secret of our success. Okay, so I'm going to just begin with a little bit of data. So this comes from a battery of cognitive tests administered to three different species. So two-and-a-half-year-old humans, chimpanzees, and orangutans. And this research is done by Esther Herman and Mike Tomasello at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. And so 18 different cognitive tests broken down into three different areas. So uh, space, a subset of tests on space, quantities, causality, and social learning. And what you can see from this figure here is that um, the humans do about as well as the chimps. They get about 70% right on the space. Uh, the chimps actually do slightly better than the humans on, uh, on quantity. So there's, it's within the margin of error, but the chimps do a little bit better. And same thing on causality, the the chimps do marginally better. Now, if you dig into the causality test and look specifically at the tests that try to measure differences in tool using, the chimps actually do much better on tool using than the two-and-a-half-year-old children. Now, I think the real telling point here is that if I were to give these, this battery of cognitive tests to you guys, you would blow the roof off the test and you'd do much better than the apes. So between two and going up well into the 20s, humans still, we get better and better at these kind of solving these cognitive problems. So something is happening during that time. Meanwhile, if we look at the chimpanzees, there's no change over the course of their lives. In fact, sometimes the young chimpanzees, the five-year-old chimpanzees, are better at the tasks than the older chimpanzees. So that's a hint to what, to what must be going on there. There's nothing special about these particular measures. I could show you uh, data on working memory or chimps and humans engaging in strategic thinking, and you would see that there's no uh, particular human advantage in this. Another way of getting at this would be to think about taking this room of very smart people and parachuting you into the Aturi forest or into the Amazon basin and having you try to survive. And you would no doubt struggle. You couldn't start fire. You couldn't make tools. Um, if it was a game of survivor, you would probably lose to, to Dorothy's capuchins. Uh, so, so we're clearly missing something. Humans rely on this large body of cultural inheritance. So it's not our innate intelligence or our problem-solving abilities or our ability to build causal models on the fly, but something else. So where do our fancy tools and technologies come from? So I'm going to make the case that it comes from our collective brain. And particularly, our collective brain is anchored in our cultural natures and social natures. So these are two separate things. Our cultural natures is our ability to learn from others, to look out into the minds and behaviors of others in our social milieu and filter out and learn ideas, beliefs, values, practices from other members of our group. The social part is that For various reasons, we're able to live in large groups. And the larger the group, the better. The more we're able to generate ideas, beliefs, and values that are adapted to our environments, more sophisticated technologies. 
All right, now to get at this question from an evolutionary perspective, uh, and this, this approach was actually, uh, Marcus Feldman led us off today, and in 1976 he wrote a paper with Luca Luigi Cavalli Sforza in which they made the first effort to take the logic of natural selection of genetic evolution and to think about how it might have shaped our psychology for cultural learning, our abilities to, to adaptively extract ideas, beliefs, and values from other members of our social group. Others like Boyd and Richardson went to build, on, build a large research program on that process. And since then, there's been a great deal of research, much of it with young children, showing that from even before age one, we keenly uh, attend to who we learn from. So we learn from certain individuals. We're particular about what we learn from, uh, how we integrate information across individuals, and when we choose to use social learning over our own intuitions or our own experience. And together, when you put all this together in large groups over many generations, it produces what I call cultural adaptations. And this includes the fancy tools and technologies that we're so impressive for in the natural world. Now, this process can and often does operate outside of conscious awareness. Now, one of my favorite things to do is to regale people with many, many examples of all the ways in which cultural evolution builds adaptive behavior in ways that are unconscious and unseen behind the scenes. I'll just give you one example today, uh, something you're already familiar with, spices. So people use spices in different ways. Different cultures have different spicing traditions. Some places use many more spices in the recipes than other places. But once you realize that spices are an adaptation to the problem of foodborne pathogens, you can predict a whole bunch of things about the kinds of plants for which we'll harvest their chemical properties and put them in our foods, which societies will tend to use a lot of spices, which spices they'll use, and how they'll recombine spices in synergetic ways that make it more powerful and more antimicrobial. And you can predict which kinds of foods. And this can all happen outside of conscious awareness. Many of you probably didn't know that spicing was... Um, uh, uh, projecting against foodborne pathogens. And in some cases, it's even possible to show that if people understood, they might be less likely to do the behavior and it would be maladaptive. So understanding is a bad thing. <laughs> in some cases. Uh, now, when you begin to build models and think about how humans learn, so we take what we know about human learning and we allow humans to learn in groups interconnected in different ways, one of the robust findings from what is now a, a decent body of literature is that larger and more interconnected populations evolve technologies and tools and other aspects of culture more quickly in adapting to their environment, and their ability to hold and preserve large bodies of different tools and technologies uh, is, is, lar is bigger, is more, they can hold more of them in larger populations. Even more interesting and something that you can use to solve various puzzles throughout human history and around the world is that a sudden reduction in the size of a population will cause populations to ebb away technology to lose things over time. Now, one piece of evidence that I like for this is research done by Michelle Klein and Robert Boyd. And what these anthropologists did is they went back to the ethnography from uh, societies all over Polynesia, and they coded marine foraging technology. And they counted the number of tools these different islands around the Pacific had, uh, and they also assessed the complexity. And you can see here, this is an example of how very simple method developed by Wendell Oswald in which you just count the parts in the tool, and you can get a number of techno units for that tool show you the results here quickly. So in this plot here on this side, you can see this is the population size. It's a log scale. These dots are the different islands, and this is the number of tools. So larger islands had more, uh, more different kinds of tools for marine foraging. And this is the mean number of techno units. So not only did larger islands have more total tools, those tools were on average more complex. They had more parts. 
you can see that they also differentiated by contact. So in addition to the population size, they got a measure of how connected the islands were. And islands that had more contact with other islands in the Pacific, were, they're above the line, which means that they have an extra boost over and above their population size from the interconnectedness, from being a little bit more interconnected with other populations. And um, one thing that's interesting from the point of view of looking back at the paleoanthropological record is it's not an uncommon practice to try to infer things about the cognition of ancient creatures based on the kind of tools they make. But if you were to use that same approach here, you would deduce that the folks who lived in Hawaii traditionally were much smarter and more mentally sophisticated than the folks who lived in this small island off the coast of New Guinea. The lesson here is that it's really the collective brain that's doing work, not the individual smarts of the, of the people in the brain. Incidentally, this, was, this is part of the Austronesian expansion, so it's relatively recent. We can be confident there aren't genetic differences there. Okay. All right. Now, I don't want you to think that this is just interesting for thinking about uh, ancient Polynesian societies. So I put in this plot, which is U.S. cities and uh, the number of innovations they produce based on patent data. So the larger the U.S. city, over 10,000, the more patents they produce. That's not too interesting in that we would expect larger cities to have more people to produce more patents, but this is a super linear relationship, which means controlling for things like education and occupation, the same person put into a larger city is more likely to produce patents and innovations. So it's the people get more innovative in larger cities. There's a number of data sets showing the same relationship. Okay, now those are all interesting correlations, and, and, but we can't be too confident there's actually a causal relationship. So what researchers have done is to go to the laboratory and try to create micro-societies, which allow us to get some insights. So the typical um, micro-society that's been used by a number of different researchers is to take a bunch of, say, 100 undergraduates and create generations. So each individual gets a task that they have to solve. They do their best on the task. Um, my tradition likes to pay people for right answers. And then they transmit the information in some way down to another generation of undergraduates, you know, laboratory generations, who then takes that information, does their best, and passes it down. So we're going to run this for 10 generations. Now, the key thing in this setup is that in this, the individual condition, you can only learn from one teacher, so not much interconnectedness. In this condition, you could learn from any one of the five in the prior generation, so you could potentially recombine ideas from different individuals. They had to replicate this image with a notoriously user-unfriendly uh, image editing program, and they, ha they had a time limit. As I mentioned, they're paid for their performance, but they're also incentivized for their students' performance. So they get more money if they send good instructions, which then after the task, they can write up to two pages, which goes down to the next generation. It allows us to analyze the kinds of things people said. And then so the next generation, everybody after generation one, they get the model's product, which they can compare to the target image, this image, uh, and they get the write-up. And then they have a go at the task themselves. This is the results, so uh, 10 generations. You can see here in generation one, they actually had a pretty good group uh, of the, the, single, the single learning uh, tradition group. And then, but in the more interconnected group, they didn't have such a lucky first group. But here, a cumulative cultural evolutionary process kicked in, where they could take from the previous generation, they could add to it, any lucky insights were brought together, and then passed down. So that by the end, uh, the 10th generation is twice as skilled as the 10th generation in the other treatment. 
Not only that, if you break down and look at the data individually, the worst person in the interconnected population, so the population that could learn from others, is better than the best person in the single population where you just have one-to-one learning. So it makes a big difference in how apparently smart people look. It looks like they can just do things better. All right. So I want to get back to the question that I began at the beginning when I introduced the apes and the humans. And uh, this was the idea that so something from going from a two-and-a-half-year-old when your cognition is not that much better than a, than a chimpanzee till you're 20-something when you can blow the roof off the test, what happens there? And part of what's going on here is a download of pre-built solutions that have accumulated in our inherited body of know-how over many generations. So simple things like uh, springs and screws and levers and pulleys are hard to invent for the first time. But once you grow up in, in an environment that has springs and screws and levers and pulleys, they're easy to figure out and then reapply to new, to new contexts. One example that I like is the wheel. It seems relatively simple. You see Gary Larson cartoons with ancient human ancestors using experimenting with wheels. But actually, uh, the wheel arrives relatively late in human history, about 6,000 years ago. It appears on carts and then pottery. Eventually, it's used to transfer power, but only in Eurasia. It doesn't appear in the uh, North America, South America, Oceania, Australia. So they don't invent wheels. Sometimes people have pointed to uh, certain kinds of animals being present, but the dog's everywhere. And you can see the Belgians here are using this dog to pull their cart. So there's at least some kind of animals that can pull and then once you have wheels, you can do all kinds of things with them. Elastically stored energy used to make a bow and arrow, um, never invented in Australia. You don't see anything with elastically stored energy. Fletching is not invented in New Guinea, although uh, New Guinea folks do have bows and arrows. We heard from Raphael about uh, counting systems. So lots of societies like the Machiganga, who I worked with, count one, two, three, many. Um, but this group counts to 27. You can see we, uh, Raphael and I read the same literature. Um, and uh, you can find everything in between. So you can find uh, groups that can count to 11, 13, 36. Some groups figure out how to cycle. But you guys have all been bequeathed a counting system that allows you to count without bound. Another example is the number zero. So the number zero, as a placeholder, has only been invented twice in human history. Once by the Mayans and a second time in India. It diffuses to Europe through uh, Islamic societies. All right. My favorite example is the abacus. So you can track the evolution of the abacus from Babylonian counting boards, and you can see how the abacus is evolving culturally to take use of how we use space and how we clump things in order to exploit aspects of our evolved cognition. But then what's amazing to me is that children can train on the abacus, the physical device, and then with sufficient training, they can put the abacus aside. And then you can give them incredibly complex calculation problems where they're adding up large, amount, large numbers, 10 or 15 of them, um, and they do it, you can see their fingers moving and they're not touching anything physical and they seem to be looking up in the air and then suddenly they come out with the answer. And they have races between uh, the mental abacus and the calculator. So this is a whole new cognitive ability that's kind of bootstrapped up from this physical apparatus which evolved culturally to fit aspects of our, of our minds. All right, and so this gives us a different picture of how, how humans have evolved. So culture-driven genetic evolution. Sometime in our species... Uh, evolutionary history. I think it happened actually before, about two million years ago. We became a species with cumulative cultural evolution. What we passed down from one generation was built upon by the next generation. 
Um, how this happened, if you want to know that, you'll have to read my book, The Secret of Our Success. Uh, I, I actually favor a kind of social explanation. So if we became more social and had larger groups, that could, that could push a group, a group of primates across this threshold, what I call the Rubicon. And this leads to ongoing cultural evolution. Now, of course, genetic evolution doesn't stop and hasn't stopped now, so we have two parallel inheritance systems. And these inheritance systems have been interacting over millions of years, potentially, or at least hundreds of thousands. So you can produce things like stone tools, like Dietrich told us about, that allow you to process food and reduce the selection pressure on your teeth and your chewing apparatus. It can produce things like fire and cooking, which allows us to externalize our digestive system and shrink our colon, shrink our stomachs. Um, it supplies energy to allow us to have larger brains, gives us uh, extra dexterity in our hands to use those tools. And in particular, in this world, our brains are being selected for their ability to acquire, organize, store, and retransmit cultural information. We're, we're cultural learners, as because the more our brains get better at doing this culture thing, the more cumulative cultural evolution is going to create things that we need to learn. So now the game is that all the valuable stuff I need to know is, is in the minds of the prior generation. And if I can get some, learn something from him and something from him and something from her, then I can recombine them and have an even better cultural repertoire. So things like throwing and uh, finding tubers underground, uh, water containers can allow us to engage in long-distance running and persistence hunting. This is going to create a pressure for even larger brains to learn all those tools and technologies clothings and adhesives, eventually projectiles. And this can explain why we have a, why we seem to have a specialized cognition for learning about artifacts. And we regard and learn about those in a different way uh, than we learn about things in the biological world, so plants and animals. And in particular, it helps explain why we're willing to put faith in the wisdom of prior generations. Developmental psychologists call this over-imitation, why we copy all the steps. But it also explains why we might be willing to believe in invisible beings or other magical powers. There's a lot of wisdom in the tradition, and, and we can't always tell what the useful information is from the not-so-useful information. So the key to understanding humans is to recognize this long-term period of dual inheritance. Um, and that's it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.